Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor from the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese. In our bi-monthly podcasts, we interview philosophers about their ideas as expressed in their newly published books. Today's interview is with Lee Braver, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Hiram College, about his latest book, Groundless Grounds, a study of Wittgenstein and Heidegger, just out from the MIT Press. Ludwig Wittgenstein and Martin Heidegger are both considered among the most influential philosophers of the 20th century. Both are born in 1889 in German-speaking countries. Both studied under leading philosophers of their day, Bertrand Russell and Edmund Husserl, respectively, and were considered their philosophical heirs. Both ended up critiquing their mentors and thereby influencing the direction of thought in both the analytic and continental philosophical traditions. In this engaging volume, Braver attempts to build what he calls a load-bearing bridge between these often polarized traditions, arguing that both thinkers have similar arguments for similar conclusions on similar fundamental issues. Both blame the disengaged contemplation of traditional philosophy for confusion about the nature of language, thought, and ontology, and that attention to normal, ongoing human activity in context presents alternative fundamental insights into their nature. The groundless grounds of the title is the idea that finite human nature gives us everything we need to understand meaning, mind, and being, and that to insist that this ground requires justification itself betrays confusion. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Lee. Yes. Hi, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, looking forward to our to talking about your new book, Groundless Grounds. Um, uh, let me just uh, ask you to start us off with uh, a little background about your interest in this topic in philosophy and, and maybe in philosophy in general, how you came to write the book. Um, and uh, what you found exciting about uh, building a bridge between these these two uh, these two philosophers? Well, I, I started becoming interested in it when I was writing my first book, uh, A Thing of This World, and that book tried to kind of create a very large scale conversation between analytic and continental philosophy by setting up a, uh, a definition of anti-realism that I get from analytic philosophers and then applying it to continental thinkers. And uh, throughout it, I, I talked about a, quite a, a large number of different thinkers. And one of the pairings that I kind of kept going back to was Heidegger and Wittgenstein. I just kind of came across it as I was writing about the other stuff. But the more I looked at the two of them together, the more I saw that, that I found just uh, utterly fascinating, the more connections, the more overlap. And so uh, I decided to uh, uh, write uh, my next book on that. And, you know, there had been a number of uh, secondary uh, – there's been some secondary literature on the pairing, but – Almost always it's very specific. It's very tightly focused and I really wanted – like I said, the more I peeled back layer upon layer, the more I saw there. I just kept seeing more and more interesting connections to, to be made. And so I want to give a really a kind of a broad overview 
uh, as much as possible of the main ideas in both thinkers and show their connections or similarities where they did disagree um, in general, uh, their their agreement on most of their main topics. And so uh, originally the subtitle was a comprehensive study of uh, Heidegger and Wittgenstein. I ended up dropping that. It was a little little <laughs> presumptuous. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to be a, v- a very broad, wide-ranging discussion of the two. Well, you do uh, you do note in the beginning that you restrict it somewhat to uh, early and late Wittgenstein, but then just the early Heidegger. Is that correct? That's right. That was uh, <laughs> rather heartbreaking. Uh, when you write, you always have to cut some bits out that you really enjoy, and I really like later Heidegger quite a bit. There's one extended discussion of later Heidegger, and there's occasional references to him, but it just structurally became unwieldy to do uh, both early and later Wittgenstein and early and later Heidegger. And so I primarily focus on, on early Heidegger uh, because they're, that's where the richer, more interesting uh, discussions are. But as far as why I picked these two, uh, you know, really, I, I don't pick my topics. You know, my topics pick me. I, I find that ideas or figures or arguments just uh, appeal. They just cry out to be talked about, to be discussed. Heidegger, uh, he he always likes using, paying attention to the literal meaning of words. And the word in, in German for questionable is fragwürdig, but literally it means worthy of questioning. And so there, he, he talks about how certain ideas just kind of call out to be thought about and when I when I read when I read Heidegger and Wittgenstein, I just find them so fascinating. They're they're just endlessly provocative, endlessly uh, giving me new ideas, new ways of thinking. Um, that I, I just think I find them the two most fascinating philosophers I've ever read. And uh, I'm I'm certainly not alone in that. They they both have a kind of a cult. Uh, uh, following sort of it, there. I can't think of any other philosophers who have, you know, whole books devoted just to houses that they that they were associated with. But uh, Heidegger and Wittgenstein just have this effect, and I, I find them fascinating. And then they're also arguably the two most important philosophers of the 20th century, two most influential. Uh, there and the fact that they're in different branches makes it all the more interesting to me. Well, yeah, Wittgenstein in particular is uh, he, he tends to be claimed by by both the analytic and continental in a way that that Heidegger isn't usually. Although there has been a little bit of rapprochement between the two uh, in recent years, so so your book sort of fits in with a trend to kind of. Uh, you know, try to find linkages between the two traditions rather than, you know, have them constantly at each other's throats. Well, this has really been one of my main focuses of my of my research as a whole. Um, I don't think that there's no real difference at all. It's all just sociological. We're all saying the same thing. Uh, but neither do I think that we're doing completely alien things, uh, uh, things that are alien to each other. I think that we are doing, we are split to some degree from a common root, 
and conversations can be had. It just takes some work. You just have to put some effort into it. It's a little harder than within uh, one branch or the other. But we can have these conversations, and they can be extremely productive precisely because we don't see things the same way. So um, uh, to get to this this common root, um, how would you characterize uh, you know, the basic or fundamental similarity that you see between uh, Wittgenstein and, and Heidegger? Before we get into details of specifics, um, just an, as an overview... Well, this is what I, I meant by the title uh, "groundless grounds," or also this phrase, kind of ugly phrase that I came up with, "original finitude," that isn't great. But uh, you know, one of the one of the questions is: if I'm right that they are saying such similar things, why is this the case? Why would they be uh, so similar in these ways? And I think that they're both kind of. Uh, coming from a, a fundamental intuition, a basic idea about the nature of reason uh, and the nature of philosophy because of that. Uh, there's really, from its birth, philosophy has been presented as uh, an escape, so to speak, right? I mean, the, it's, it's paradigmatic uh, story in the cave. We're in this world, we're, we're among these shadows, but this isn't real. This isn't the ultimate level of reality. This is a, a, a trap that we have entered um, accidentally in both senses of the word. And the way to get out of it, the way to get to true reality that transcends all of these uh, factors is through reasoning. Reasoning gets us in touch with what's what's real, what's beyond uh, these shadows. So we were born into a particular gender. We were born into a particular time, into a particular culture. We've been raised to believe certain ideas, but reasoning is what allows us to reflect on these and to ask whether they're actually true or not. Uh, reason is something that escapes these uh, uh, contingent influences, these influences that we happen to be uh, born into. And I think that kind of image of reason has been a very constant throughout philosophy. I mean, you can certainly see it in a lot of uh, Christian uh, philosophy. Uh, Descartes, of course, you know, performs methodological doubt to get out of his cave, to get out of the beliefs that he just happens to have absorbed uh, as a young person. Uh, for Kant, right, you might have been taught certain ideas. You might have been taught to believe in certain uh, ethical values. But that's all in the phenomenal realm. You can, in a sense, switch to the noumenal realm ethically, and use your reason, which is, which doesn't get influenced by these causes. It does, it's, it's impervious to these uh, external contingent factors. And what I see, and, and I think uh, uh, Wittgenstein in his early work took up this idea. Frege very much embraces this idea. This is, you know, in one way it's his 
his critique of psychologism. We can't tie logic and truth to just the fact about the way that humans happen to think. That's totally irrelevant to uh, to truth. Right. And logic is what allows us to, you know, transcend these factors. And Wittgenstein is earlier, I think, very much uh, adhered to this ideal that there are the 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 features about our, our the signs that we use, and these can be very confusing. These can lead to errors, but there is this ultimate metaphysical skeleton to the universe. And logic is what unveils it to us. And what I see in uh, uh, later Wittgenstein and in all of Heidegger is a rejection of this ideal, of this conception of reason and therefore of philosophy. For them, uh, our our th- our reasoning, our thinking processes are not something that we use to overcome these contingent factors that we're born into, but they're part of that. Nothing about us escapes history, escapes uh, the bodily, escapes human nature for for Wittgenstein. Um, Everything that we do, what we think, how we act, how we talk, it's all part of this, um, what, what Wittgenstein at one point calls this natural history. And so they, they see philosophy, uh, the tradition of philosophy has kind of been, been built for a god. And that's what, how finitude has been understood. We are finite in the sense that we are limited versions of the divine. There's just so much we can learn. There's just so much we can see. But we are um, shadows cast by the sun of being, by, by, by perfection, by this ideal. And the notion of original finitude is an attempt to, to think about human nature and think about reasoning uh, in a way that is limited, but not as in contrast to something that's unlimited. It's a notion of finitude that isn't just the limitation of infinitude. And so both of them are, are, are I think, it's a, it's, a, it's a, I mean, on this reading, it's a very radical move to make. Uh, Heidegger, of course, sees... Uh, uh, all of philosophy, the whole two and a half millennia of philosophy has this continuous arc that despite all, all, all the changes that have happened are just variations on a theme for him. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're all, you know, he's, problems, he simplifies and he has violent interpretations and so forth. But I think that he does identify some of the, the common uh, and really deep roots of uh, the way philosophy has traditionally been practiced. And for Wittgenstein, of course, he's famous for uh, disdain of the history of philosophy. He doesn't read anyone, which is exaggerated. He did know a few people, but he didn't spend much time reading it. But he's reacting primarily to his own early work, which he sees as paradigmatic of philosophy. 
So let me just, um, to, to be a little more specific, I mean, when you, um, uh, when you discuss it in chapter two, you have to sort of introduce the basic rejection of traditional philosophy. Um, uh, both go, both sort of target different areas. Wittgenstein, the idea of meaning and, and thought, um, and, and Heidegger's more metaphysics, the idea of, of an object. Um, and in, in chapter two, you, 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 you draw parallels between these in terms of what, of what you call meaning objects for Wittgenstein and, uh, present at hand objects, uh, for Heidegger. Right. Um, as, as, you know, their respective targets. Um, so maybe you could, um, to, to make the, um, the parallels a bit more concrete, um, maybe you could uh, talk about those two uh, those two specific parallels. Okay. Uh, yeah, they. I mean, you're right that that um, Wittgenstein focuses, of course, much more on language. Heidegger, especially in the early work, much more on being. But they're very interconnected, and and the way that they analyze them is very similar. So they both see the standard philosophical stance or method. As, a, as, as contemplative, what, you stop what's going on and you examine it. Right? I mean, we, again, we can see this uh, in, in Plato. He complained about how the body pulls us from one thing to another. and We have to really just stop and think. Descartes, ref, ref, you know, he retires to his cabin for quiet. And so that you stop and you study and you examine uh, for, again, for Wittgenstein, you take a word or a phrase or a sentence and you repeat it over and over to yourself. For Heidegger, you have to go into the theoretical stance and just stare and examine something. And philosophy prizes this stance. This is uh, how we think we get to the ultimate truth, how we get to, we get the best um, perspective without all the distractions. But Wittgenstein and Heidegger think that when we do that, we lose something. That, that distorts what was there. We think it reveals what was there, but in fact it distorts it. And this is especially um, ironic for Heidegger because Husserl used what he called uh, uh, phenomenological reduction or bracketing precisely to find what was already there, whereas Heidegger argues that that kind of stance uh, obliterates, it disguises, it covers over what was already there. So what we find when we do that is that we we look for the wrong kinds of things. Right? For Heidegger, we see everything as just a kind of uh, this inert, self-contained object that just sits there, very much what substance ontology is like. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and for uh, Wittgenstein... We look for words uh, containing their own use or rules containing their own application. So the the um, the rule add to, for instance, contains or anticipates its its outcome of two, four, six, eight, etc., onto uh, infinity. And they both think that this uh, this perspective. Um, leads to all kinds of problems. This is the source of 
all kinds of pseudo problems. They both talk a lot about the false uh, problems that philosophy creates. These aren't real problems, things like external world skepticism, uh, skepticism about other minds, um, uh, you know, the foundation of knowledge, uh, things like this. And these uh, aren't real problems. They're artifacts from this perspective. It's when, for Heidegger, it's when we switch into uh, the theoretical stance, when we stop and stare, that suddenly everything becomes these objects. And then it feels like there's this chasm between me and the world, and I have to somehow bridge this. And there you get uh, skepticism or in front of me is just a body with motions, and how do I know that it really feels pain? Uh, these are manufactured by this attitude. For Wittgenstein, uh, he talks about the problem of other, of other minds. He also talks a lot about interpretation. Right? When you're walking along a path and you see an arrow pointing you in one direction, you just follow it unthinkingly, and it's not a problem. But when you stop and stare at it and you think, well, how can I take this? What does this arrow actually tell me? All of a sudden it seems mute or it says a million different things. I can follow the arrow from feather to point or I could follow it from point to arrow, uh, point to feather. Or I could follow it vertically or I could read it in this way. I could read it in a million different ways and all of a sudden, it seems like meaning has gone, and I don't know how to how I ever understood it in the first place. And this is an artificial problem, right? Mm-hmm. Wittgenstein, go ahead. No, go ahead. I mean, Wittgenstein says, "Look, we can we can tell that this is an artificial problem by the fact that normally we just look at it and turn left, and that's what we're losing when we." Uh, when we switch to this stance, and this stance is something that is natural to humans. We, we, we naturally stop and reflect, but philosophy takes it and, and runs with it. Philosophy takes it and exaggerates it, takes it as um, the only authoritative perspective. Well, is there... Um... Uh, is is there a limit to the critique here for for either of them on, on your view? I mean, uh, is it just that philosophy has, as you just put it, you know, taken a particular perspective and run with it, and we have to kind of rein it in, um, or is is it uh, is it that we shouldn't be ha- that the only problems there really are are these philosophical problems and that we should just like stop worrying about these things and just uh, stop reflecting. Well, I I think uh, there are a couple answers to that. Uh, For one thing, I think they both would agree with Kant that we have this intrinsic tendency to keep running into them. You, You can't just quit doing it you know we're always kind of recovering metaphysicians right and we can just get back into it at the drop of a hat with one little question and we're off and running with it um so it's i don't think there's there are ever uh, uh complete solutions to it um but also you know I, I they take this as their target and it's, you know um but heidegger in particular thinks that he, he's not saying 
that this stance is wrong. He thinks that presence at hand is one of the ways that things are, that things are substances, things are objects. The problem is that it takes over our thinking. Because this is what we see when we're con- contemplating, we, f- we assume that this is what it means to be real. I mean, you know, just think of Descartes. What it means to be is to be a substance. And then anything that isn't a substance is either sub- a subjective projection or it's an accident stuck into a substance uh, or so on. So, yes, when we are... Uh, in this stance, this does show us facts about the world. You know, Heidegger, despite his reputation, was not at all dismissive of, of science. He had some criticisms of it, but he, he didn't think it was uh, this, you know, inherently evil, terrible thing that we all need to quit and get rid of. Um, but we can't let it. Uh, uh, we can't let this perspective say that this is the only way that things are. We need to recover or uncover these other very, very different ways of things. So he spends his time and being in time talking about these different ways of being. And these are the ways of being that we do spend most of our time in uh, that play a much, much bigger role in our lives than objects do. And yet we, we, they become invisible when we look through the lens of presence at hand ontology. And this is ready to hand tools. Right. Um, so we spend, you know, most of our lives using things for purposes. And these aren't like substances at all. It's only when we stop using them and stare at them that suddenly they sit there and become self-sufficient objects. And that in fact, the tools have a completely different way of being. So it's not that he's saying that presence at hand is false. What he's saying is that we, and especially when we're doing philosophy, we tend to think of it as the only way that things are, and that is false. And then Wittgenstein with, uh, with the meaning objects doesn't... He- he goes a bit farther, doesn't he? Yeah, I, I think he does go a little farther. Uh, he he does, I think, uh, want kind of philosophy just to stop. He doesn't see really a role in his later work. Well, both. Uh, he doesn't really see a positive role for philosophy, whereas Heidegger does. Um, he He says sometimes that, you know, if you don't, have these problems if you don't worry about skepticism and knowledge and so forth then there's you don't need my philosophy i'm just a cure and if you don't have the disease and it's it's really of no use um there are other times where he seems to go back on that it's not a hundred percent clear but that does seem to be his dominant view um on the other hand you know he never gave it up. He was ferociously dedicated to his work. Um, and, and, you know, so he does talk about someone who has lost all their problems, who has no more problems, as being terribly superficial. So it's not enti- he's not entirely clear on it. Um, but yes, he does have much less of a role for a uh, positive role for philosophy than Heidegger does. Um, however, he says, I mean, it's not that this picture, this, this idea of meaning objects is necessarily wrong as long as it doesn't kind of take over your thinking and you spend a lot of time worrying about it. 
it's fine. I mean, we, we can think, he says at one point, there's a, a passage in the investigations where a person says, it's like all the future applications of the rule were already there in some queer sense. And Wittgenstein says, yeah, sure, that's how we talk. Yeah, they were already there, just not in any queer sense. That's the only problem with what you're saying. If you want to talk about the anticipations already there and you don't get all hung up and start asking these questions about what that means and how that's possible, then it's fine. The only problem is when you when it starts kind of possessing your thinking and you rack your brain and spend hours worrying about how could the meaning already be there, that it becomes a problem. Well, one of the one of the things that occurred to me, um, you know, as I was uh, reading, you know, the connections that you were drawing, was um, and and this in a sense it goes to what you said about Heidegger and science. He didn't reject science. Um, in, in a way, um, uh, science is looking is sort of paradigmatically a way of looking at things, you know, kind of as they are. Um, at, as present at hand objects, you might say, um, sure. or Heidegger would say, um, yes. and this um, this quest for understanding how things are, you know, independently of our purposes or how we use them. I mean, there there are plenty of things in the world that are that certainly are not tools. Um, and so the the question that arose to me was, well, it it would seem that these are you know sort of not not philosophical questions so much as it's just simply part of human nature itself. So the um and, and not only that it's part of human nature, but also science has been spectacularly successful in terms of enabling us to build better tools. As a result of having this this uh, this perspective of present at hand objects, um, so in, in one sense, I suppose is this uh, is this a mistake to be thinking? I mean, not just maybe you don't want to think about everything that way, uh, but it would seem that if science is getting at the fundamental, you know, stuff of reality. Um, and it certainly seems to be, at least by the success we have had in controlling and altering it, um, it would seem in some way that it is not just part of human nature to seek that ground, that kind of ground, um, but also that there's something correct about it. Sure. <laughs> I have no problem with that. I don't think e either of them uh, would have a problem with that. The problem, I think, is in the word fundamental. Okay. Uh, the, the word fundamental implies that this is what things are really like. Yeah, we see colors. We see these macroscopic, you know, everyday uh, uh, middle-sized dry goods. But the real reality is at the molecular or the atomic level or the quark or, or what have you. And it's that really that especially Heidegger rejects. I mean, Heidegger believes that being, that reality has lots of different faces. I mean, there's no reason why we have to say 
that there's one way that the world really is, and every other way is just derivative of it or distortion of it, our projection, our interpretation, and so forth. There's nothing wrong with the idea that things have very different faces, that things uh, show us different faces depending on how we look at them or what questions we ask. It's, it's a presupposition to say that the world can only be one way. And then it's a second presupposition to say, well, since science has been very successful, which, of course, no one could possibly deny that, therefore it has found this one way. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what I think uh, Heidegger would say is that science shows us really important stuff that's extremely useful for manipulating uh, forces for building bridges, for doing things like that, it's very useful and it's very successful. But it's a non sequitur to go from that to then the claim that, and therefore this is what reality is really like. Okay. And how about the uh, Wittgenstein's critique of, of meaning and, uh, and thought? How is, that, how is this stance reflected in him? Uh, well, well, I have to think about that for a minute. Um, I mean, he, he, in, in his later work, he, he doesn't think, I mean, he also says that there are just lots and lots of different ways of talking about things and none of them can be the right, the one way. He gets very upset. For example, um, his he read uh, James Fraser's early anthropology, his work on um, on tribes, on other people, and he analyzed them all in terms of uh, being crude scientists. So when they do a rain dance, they are doing what we do when we try to seed the clouds with chemicals and so forth, but just they're doing it really badly. Yeah, they're 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 kind of dumb. And Wittgenstein gets really upset about this. And he he says that, no, they're doing something that's just fundamentally different. When they do a rain dance, that's that's not, that shouldn't be modeled on uh, trying to effect something, trying to cause a certain meteorological effect. Um, And so, for instance, he talks, he has this uh, interesting uh, discussion where he says... A, 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 an atheist and a very religious person. When the atheist says there is no God and a religious person says there is a God, they're not exactly disagreeing because they're meaning these words in very different ways. The existence of God means something completely different for the religious person who bases his or her life around it than the non-existence of God does to the atheist. So it's not a P, not P situation, even though it looks like it. The the words look like a direct, one is a direct contradiction of the other. But when we see the role they play in their lives as a whole, uh, Wittgenstein says, then we see that that the meaning of these statements is, is, is incommensurable, to use Kuhn's words. It's not a direct conflict. So when you're doing science, you're just you're, you're and you're talking about the world. You're, what it means to describe the world scientifically is very different from what it means, say, for a poet to describe the world. 
even though they're both describing the world, they're trying to, in a very broad sense, capture what the world is like, what it means when you see it in the context of their language games, of their different ways of doing it, they mean completely different things by that. So we can't say the scientist has done it and the poet hasn't. Does that make sense? Uh, Yeah, except for the fact that, uh, I mean, one of the problems I suppose raised for 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 Kuhn was just uh, was about incommensurability. Um, uh, so let, let me just put the objection this way: um, how how can we talk about the world in such a way that we are both talking about the same thing, and we're talking about it in different, you know, perhaps different meanings or different aspects? Um, but incommensurability, of course, is the idea that they're just different worlds. There is, there's, you know, it's it's the sort of a, a radical relativism that that Kuhn himself, you know, want, always wanted to deny. Um, and so, in in this particular context, set, setting Kuhn aside, um, how would either Wittgenstein or 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 Heidegger, on on your view, get to talk about? a world that is just described in two different ways. Well, I mean, for instance, for, for Wittgenstein, you know, people who have been trained in a particular language game will, will be able to pick out the same things and be able to talk about things in the same way. It, it's what they're fighting is the idea that the world just is the way it is. And, and then our descriptions are kind of um, just neutral mirrors of it. In order to to talk about the particular aspects that you want to focus on, you have to be trained into a particular way of looking at the world that way. Um, so, for example, he says, uh, if you teach someone, if you're teaching someone chess and you point to a piece and say, that's a king. If this person has no idea about what chess is or how it's played and anything else like that, that gives them virtually no information. Am I talking about this piece of wood? Am I talking about this color? Am I talking about a way of moving it? It's only when, you know, and he talks about uh, 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 ostensive uh, definitions. When you point at something, you say, that's green. If For a child, they're not going to be sure what you're pointing at. Are you pointing at the apple? Are you pointing at the color? Are you pointing out at the number? You need the child needs to learn the color language game, the color system, and the system of uh, pointing out at which aspect you're talking about before that 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 can um, succeed. Before the child can then see which aspect you mean. Once they have been trained in that, then it's it's well, it's child's play. It's it's very simple to talk about different colors. You and I are now experts in the color language game. Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy if I were to show you some, you know, kind of new shade of a color to point it out and, and tell you, oh, that's, that's uh, puce. Oh, I didn't know what puce was. Okay, now I see. We can see that aspect of the world perfectly well. We're on the same page, but only because of what Wittgenstein calls a lot of stage setting that happened way, way back when we were still extremely young. We don't remember that stage setting and it's now so painfully obvious to us 
that it doesn't feel like it would take anything. It feels like it's a, anyone would be able to pick out the aspects that we're pointing at. And I can very simply say, no, 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 not the number, but the color. Oh, I see. But all of that rests on years of training that we all went through when we, when we were so young, we don't remember it anymore. And that itself rests on what he calls a form of life, a certain uh, human nature that we do tend to, you know, look at what you're pointing. It's very hard to do this for a dog. You point at something for a dog, the dog looks at your finger. Now, if humans did that, then it would be much, much harder for us to, to learn language. But it just happens to be, uh, Wittgenstein says, that we do tend to look at the thing that, that's being pointed at. We're able generally to find the aspect that we're talking, with, uh, talking about. And that's what enables us now to talk about the world in the same ways. It's just that we forget all of that because it's so easy to us and it happens so early that it feels like it's not there at all. And, and what, one of the interesting ways that this comes out, this is something that uh, Hubert Dreyfus has done a lot of work on, someone who's, who's been an influence on me, right. is that he, he draws on both Heidegger and Wittgenstein and, and Merleau-Ponty as well. And he points at this with uh, artificial intelligence. Computers are a great example of, it's something like a mind. It has something like consciousness, but it certainly doesn't have our form of life. It isn't raised as a baby. It doesn't live among you know, other beings that it's dependent on for food and water, and, and it doesn't have our reactions, our instincts. And so it's been incredibly hard to teach computers things that are very, very simple to a four-year-old. It's not a matter of raw processing power. It's a matter of the computer doesn't look at what you're pointing the way a human does. A computer can't listen to a story the way a person does. And these, you know, Wittgenstein, his, his example, his favorite example is teaching a cat to fetch a stick. <laughs> you take a dog, dog can learn it easy. A cat won't do it. <laughs> no matter how good a trainer you are, no matter how smart the cat is, the cat won't fetch the stick. Because it's not in the cat's form of life. It's kind of natural reactions to stimuli and to um, instructions and praise and blame for it to do that. Yeah, well, well, cats are not so uh, uh, obedient the way dogs are. They don't, they, they've got their own form of life, thank you very much. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's uh, one that isn't amenable to training the way a dog is. Yeah. And and Wittgenstein's point is that it's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of instinct. Well, let me um, – we, we've, we've sort of touched on a number of uh, issues getting um, into some of the later chapters of the book. I mean you, you start in, in chapters, you know, sort of one and two, diagnosing, you know, how they both see the errors of traditional philosophy – and then uh, presenting their alternatives in terms of um, you know sort of both normal ongoing activity you know um, uh, both with language and with tool use um, and this leads to uh, a contextualized understanding a sort of know-how for both uh, semantics and for uh, ontology. 
Um, so maybe uh, since we're getting into the their more positive views, their their um, their solutions to these problems, or their alternatives or replacements, um, maybe you can stay a bit more about uh, the parallels, uh, not between their diagnoses, but uh, their solutions to the to the basic problems. Okay, uh, so they they see these meaning objects and president of hand. Uh, objects, and that's what reveals itself to the theoretical stance, which is doing, you know, trying to explicitly think out things and looking for rules uh, <clears throat> and, 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 and explicit knowledge. What that covers up is the normal, like you said, the ongoing kind of flow. Again, uh, Dreyfus gets us from uh, this guy in Zinxin Mihai that normally we don't, we, 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 we have this kind of automatic, we, we go on autopilot for most of our lives, both in talking for Wittgenstein and for uh, using things for Heidegger. That most of the time we, we are dealing with things that are these tools um, which are holistic. They're caught up in an interconnected web of other tools like a pen is only makes sense to pen when it's, it's there's also paper and a desk to write on and so forth. Uh, and for Wittgenstein, words are holistic. In, in the Tractatus, you could isolate, you know, words ultimately came down to names that were connected to simple objects that had no connection to anything else. And he goes the opposite extreme in his later work so that everything is interconnected. That the word only has meaning in a sentence, which ultimately only has meaning in a language, which ultimately only has meaning in a general form of life. And so they both want to – what they see as being covered over is this um, holistic um, uh, readiness to hand and existence for, for Heidegger – and speaking and words interconnected for uh, Wittgenstein. And so for Wittgenstein, you know, a word only has meaning in its context. And if you take it out of its context, put in a very, very different one, which is what philosophy does, then it no longer has that meaning. And in fact, we often, it often doesn't have any set meaning in that really brand new, uh, uh, very strange circumstance, the kind of thing that philosophers like doing. And, and, you know, his favorite metaphor for this is games. Uh, games do a whole lot of work for, for Wittgenstein. And so uh, a castle only means what it does within the context of the game of chess. If you start playing checkers with chess pieces, then that castle no longer means what it did before. It now has a totally different role, a totally different uh, meaning in this new context. Um, and so they, they're trying to recapture this uh, uh, holistic um, uh, world, what, what, what Heidegger calls the world, uh, that we are in in our pre-reflective, pre-theoretical stance. Mm -hmm. And in this, like you said, this is a, our, our main way of, of dealing with this world is a um, is a know how rather than a knowing that. Right? Heidegger very explicitly says that he uses circumspection, uh, umsicht. Uh, this is our way of kind of knowing our way around the world, knowing how to 
use tools to, to become a certain kind of person. And this isn't a matter of explicit thought at all, very, very rarely. So I'm a professor. That's the, the one of the um, kind of broad projects that define me. And in order to do that, I have to use the right kinds of tools, chalk and chalkboard and books, in the right kind of setting, a college, a classroom, and so forth, and with the right kind of interactions among people, students and administrators and, and all of that. And I do this without having to think about it, without having to you know, go through the rules of it. It's something that comes very naturally to me after having done it for a while. Um, and when, again, when I stop to think about it, then I, then I think about it in these inappropriate uh, uh, president hand terms. So for Wittgenstein, again, playing games is a very good metaphor for him because once you get good at a game, you don't have to think about it very much. You know, when I play checkers with my kids, it's very easy. I'm not thinking about the rules. I'm not thinking about strategy. I can just very kind of immediately react to what's on the table and make the next move without really consciously uh, paying it much attention. And it's that uh, it kind of immediate know-how that they're both trying to recapture. Uh, and that gets covered over with the explicit uh, knowing that, that we fall into when we've stopped and looked at it. So for Wittgenstein, you know, what does it mean to know how to play chess? You can say, well, it means that you know the rules and you can recite the rules. You can say what a pawn does or what a castle does. And that's basically Plato's answer. To know something is to be able to give logos, to be able, able to give a definition of it. <clears throat> but Wittgenstein asks questions like, I mean, and that seems to make understanding this purely mental event something that seems to happen entirely uh, internally, that has no necessary connection to any kind of behavior, or any kind of actions. And so Wittgenstein kind of he, he, he does a reductio of that. He takes that idea and he says, okay, well, let's explore that. Let's say that that's the way understanding happens. Then that would mean that someone can understand it regardless of how they acted. So you could have someone who could give you the right definitions of the rules and what each piece does, but every single time they've ever tried to play, they've done it wrong. <laughs> Every single time they move the pieces incorrectly or they start putting, you know, playing cards on the board or they try to eat a piece or something. And Wittgenstein says, you know, we, we would say of that person, they know something. They're able to recite the definitions and the rules, but they really, we can't say they know how to play chess. And so, it, it, he, again, he's not trying to discount the explicit awareness of it. That's something, and that's very important, especially when you start. But that's not the whole story. That can't be the whole story. Well, let me... Uh, one of the things that... Uh, well, a couple, couple things. One is, one is the relation between knowing how and, and knowing that, which is, is currently uh, being 
debated uh, once again. Um, but let, let me ask, uh, one of the things that kept, kept coming up for me in this emphasis by, by both of them on the sort of tacit understanding and the unreflective use that we use of objects. Um, and there seemed to be a sort of, I think obviously since this is part of their answers to the problems that they diagnosed, obviously there's a kind of positive valence to this idea of we just do it. We, we understand this, you know, from mother's knee and, and we should just stop all this reflective stuff, which just distorts everything. And, um, one of the problems with that, that, that kept coming up was, um, you know, who is it, who's the we, we, that, that they keep talking about. Um, and, and for me, it, I, I guess you had an example of uh, chocolate and vanilla in discussing. Uh, I think I think it was Heidegger at the time, but um, in any case, uh, the idea was that when you you know see something as you know chocolate ice cream versus vanilla ice cream, uh, the chocolate simply, in its context, unreflectively, you know, to you is something that just is appealing and the vanilla is not. And it's not as if you go through some sort of conscious reflective processing about which of these you are going to choose. Right. The chocolate simply is is chosen. It, it calls out to be chosen. And, you know, I was just thinking again here, uh, suppose you, you get a situation which is not so innocent, like choosing between chocolate and vanilla, uh, and, you know, choosing between, you know, hiring a man or hiring a woman or hiring a black person versus hiring a white person. Um, I mean, we can, with the same, apparently, with the same unreflective, implicit uh, attitudes, uh, people, too, can present themselves as being, you know, sort of obviously preferable or or really should be hired or inst or really should be chosen uh and this is this is not considered a very good thing in fact it's implicit bias and and there's a lot of psychological and philosophical literature on on the way in which uh certain you know um background assumptions you might say that again are part right. of a life you know you might say it's part of a, a form of life if not our form of life uh that has pernicious um, effects, or at least it has effects that we would not give a positive valence to. And I was just wondering, to, the, to what extent does when either Heidegger or Wittgenstein, when they talk about our form of life and what we do, uh, who, who do they mean? Well, I think that's a really good objection, and that's something that uh, that we have to look at. Uh, they're they're both talking about this, like you said, this kind of immediacy of reaction. And as you said, we know that a lot goes into that immediacy of reaction. A lot of it pretty ugly, and not what we would want. I think one of the questions that they would ask. I mean, so we're in the situation of hiring, 
and uh, someone is a racist, someone is a sexist, or it's just much more, you know, uh, not not quite that strong, but they still have these implicit biases. And, and one of the candidates, you know, presumably white or and or male, uh, comes across with this immediacy of more hireable. And that's a problem because uh, we're being pushed by biases, we're being affected by factors that we really shouldn't take into consideration, that shouldn't be the deciding factor. And so when we reflect on this situation, we realize that our initial kind of knee-jerk reaction is unjust, it's unfair. Uh, We're focusing on factors that we shouldn't be, and we should instead focus on different factors. What I think... um, both Heidegger and Wittgenstein, especially Heidegger, who spends a lot of time talking about this, would say is <clears throat> well, what happens at that second level, that meta level, when you're reflecting on your initial knee-jerk gut reaction? Yes, the male is obviously more hireable. Then when I reflect on that, I say, well, that's unfair. I think Heidegger would ask, well, why, you know, how do you... Uh, Why are you reacting against unfairness? What's wrong with unfairness? And not that (laughs) he wants to get rid of fairness, but what, what the point is, is that the reaction, the kind of response, repeats itself at this higher level. Not necessarily the same response, but for you to condemn that bottom level reaction you have to appeal to some kind of higher criterion here to justice or fairness. And where does the value of that criterion come from? It has to, at some point, be that I just feel that fairness is better. You know, the, the, the arguing has to bottom out at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and, and Hume is one of the figures that I spend some time on showing how he anticipated some of these ideas. And Hume says in his ethics, if uh, you take someone who doesn't have this fellow feeling, someone who just doesn't care about other people's pain and suffering, if they're just a sociopath, entirely apathetic, and you ask them, should you torture and kill complete innocence, they're going to say, you know, one way or the other, doesn't really matter, it's indifferent. And you can't argue them into seeing why causing others to suffer is wrong. Any arguing that you apply to, any, any that you appeal to, is itself going to have to find purchase on something that's inside them, some <clears throat> non-reasoning reaction. So... And, and, and Hume says that if someone doesn't have just the, this basic feeling that suffering is bad, no kind of intellectual argument is going to persuade them. So for Heidegger, absolutely, we, you know, we should make that leap to reflection that you're talking about. But we have to look again at that moment of reflection. There's the tendency to see this in a very uh, Kantian way. Right. For Kant, I've been taught to be a racist. I've got these influences. I was raised to believe this. But I can kind of sidestep all of that and appeal to something that's outside of time, 
outside of culture. And when I'm doing that, I'm autonomous. When I'm doing that, I'm making this decision. I'm free. It's me making this decision. But, you know, as Hegel said right away, well, why is that me? Why is that, uh, that, that form of reasoning that, that, that um, thinks of the categorical imperative, why should I accept that as myself any more than any of the cultural or historical facts that happened to me? When we're reflecting, we're still reacting. We're just reacting to different features in a slightly different way. Uh, both of them think that it, that it has to stop. The stopping point has to be something which we don't argue for. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I suppose it, it basically applies the same uh, contextualizing answer to, to the problem. Um, we have some sort of valuation form of life. And again, the we here, I mean, that's sort of the issue is, is this, what is the context of the we, or what is the scope, I should say, of the we, such that uh, we would insist that sexism or racism or anything, any other ism uh, is not a positive thing. Uh, the we here seems to be just uh, this is what we do, and that's what they are saying in general, right? Yeah, <laughs> Wittgenstein likes that sentence. He says that quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but for the who the we is, I mean, in they have multi-leveled analyses. Some aspects of the we are, you know, just human nature, all humans for Wittgenstein and Dasein for, for Heidegger. There are some features of us that are just universal. But they also pay a lot of attention, uh, uh, Wittgenstein's later work, and Heidegger even more in his later work, to the way these change over time. Um, these do fundamentally change. Well, that, that was actually one of, uh, one of the questions I had uh, to kind of wrap things up in a way was how how do these forms of life these these this implicit we um how does that change over time i mean it's not just a matter of there's a there's a ground in what we do uh because what we do obviously changes whatever your we happens to be and i was wondering if you might tell us how they see those how they see that development well, that's one of the meanings of it being groundless. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we have to take both parts of that phrase seriously, groundless ground, something that Heidegger explicitly uses. Wittgenstein comes very close to it a number of times. On the one hand, these, the, the form of life or these basic uh, um, cultural ideas, they are a functioning ground. They do kind of give us ways of living and ways of reacting and ways of talking and they do allow us to say things like, I know that's a tree over there, and I know you're in pain. and They function perfectly well, but they're not the traditional notion of a ground. They're not an absolute ground. They're not something that escapes all the history and the culture. They're not something that is self-justifying or is um, so true that it can't be wrong. 
It's not something that any rational being must admit and adhere to on pain of betraying human nature or God or rationality or, or what have you. And these, uh, these do shift. This is something that Heidegger really focuses on in his later work. In his later work, he divides history up into epochs. And for a few centuries, we have this way of this, what he calls, of course, it's Heidegger, so it's an understanding of being. We have this basic approach to life, to society, to how we relate to each other, how we relate to the world. And it's undergone fundamental, radical transformations. He, he really, if you look at some of his work, he really uh, um, anticipates a lot of Kuhn's ideas by a few uh, decades. So, for example, in the Middle Ages, the understanding of being, what it meant for anything to be, was to be a creation of God. God created everything, and so for something to exist, it must have been created by God, and that's the meaning of being at that time. And that grounds uh, a whole way of understanding the world, that grounds an ethics. We need to worship God. We need to do what God tells us to do. It grounds an epistemology. Knowledge is knowing what God's thinking to the degree that we can, uh, an ontology, etc. It gives us a whole worldview. And then it, it, and it's lasted for several hundred years, and then it gave way to a different one, to an, uh, the modern one that's more science-oriented and so forth. And so these do, for Heidegger, undergo these, these fundamental shifts at times. And, and what he's really hoping for is that we undergo another one, because he doesn't like the one we're in right now. He has a very dim view of our contemporary understanding. Uh, Wittgenstein doesn't go into anything like that kind of detail. He's not at all interested in sketching out a history or anything like that. But he does talk a lot, well, occasionally, uh, about the um, flexibility of language. Mm -hmm. That language does, he, he talks about it, he compares it in, in the investigations to a city, not one that was planned, but one that kind of organically grew, and you can see you know, that at one point there was a certain kind of architectural style that was popular, then that went away, and then another style came up, and then people, everyone wanted this kind of building. And it's this organic mess that grew over time of just accruing new layers as other ones got torn down or buried or, or absorbed into, into uh, newer ones. And he has this wonderful phrase in uncertainty, uh, of course, he's talking about certainty. One of the main ideas about a foundation is that it's certain. And he says that there are certain ideas or propositions that we don't doubt, not because they're indubitable, but just these are things that we, in, in the language game, we've kind of taken them off the table. And he at one point compares it to a riverbed and the river that flows through it, where the riverbed are the things that we don't doubt, and all the riverbed, the river, are the things that we do. These are things that we really can say we know or we don't know, we can argue about. And he says, but over time, they shift. And ultimately, the river will start out one place, 100 years, 200 years later, ends up being somewhere else, not by the way that Heidegger thinks these kind of cataclysms, but just by very gradual wearing away. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the existence of God at one point was just indubitable. That's just a plain fact of the universe. Mm 
And, and today it isn't that way. Even for people who believe, it doesn't have that same status. So Heidegger, Wittgenstein is very open, unlike in his early work, very open to these fluctuations, these changes, which over time accumulate into very radical differences. Well, let me, uh, un- unfortunately, we're, we're out of time. It's been a fascinating conversation and discussion. Um, so I well, enjoyed but, it. But I, I just wanted to ask very quickly uh, if you uh, want to say anything about what your next project uh, is. Are you, are you building further bridges or going in a different direction? Well, I, yeah, I, I'm returning to the topic of anti-realism. Uh, that I talked about in the in my first book, uh, and I'm exploring what a I mean the, the the thesis of the first book was for the past 200 years continental philosophy has been primarily uh, anti-realist. It's yeah. mainly followed in Kant's footsteps and developed and, and adapted this idea in very new ways, but it's it's adhered to this basic idea. Mm-hmm. And I was very persuaded by anti-realism. I, I, I found it to be um, very, a very good position. Oh, no. And, yeah, so <laughs> I think it, 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 you have to you know, develop it. You have to have a sophisticated version of it. But yeah, I, I, I have to admit I'm an anti-realist. Oh, no. Uh, and what I'm exploring now is a kind of realism that, that learns the lessons of anti-realism but doesn't have to follow to, to fall entirely into that. Well, that that sounds fascinating, and I, I certainly look forward to reading that book too. Um, well, a paper of, of it has already come out in Continental Philosophy Review called "A History of Continental Realism." Uh-huh. But, uh huh. So that gives you kind of the nut of it. But I'm trying to expand it into a book now. Great. Okay. Well, uh, we are out of time, but uh, thank you very much for your for your uh, for your very illuminating uh, discussion. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Lee Braver, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Hiram College, about his new book, Groundless Grounds, A Study of Wittgenstein and Heidegger, just out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.